0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. It's a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life. That's your family, your community, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program, and I run a company called Total Leadership, which is based on a program that we established when I was the head of leadership development at Ford Motor Company about 20 years ago. I've written a book on that, and you can find out more about it at totalleadership.org. You can also find information there at that site about my latest Work, which is called Parents Who Lead, co-authored with Alyssa Westring, now available everywhere. And for new episodes of this show, we premiere at 5 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays here on SiriusXM Channel 132, and you can follow us on SSXM Business, as well as me, at Stu Friedman, and you can also find free versions of this podcast available uh, at com, where it's edited and available for anyone who's not a Serious XM subscriber like you. All right. Uh, thank you for joining us today. It's uh, such a strange time, isn't it? We are in a new world, and working from home has brought all kinds of new complications and challenges in our relationships with our families, our friends, and of course our co-workers. Um, Today's guest, I'm really excited about this conversation because she's got some great ideas about helping us to learn how to better deal with conflicts that arise, not only in uh, quarantine times, but anytime, at home, at the office, in any relationship. She's got some really useful advice for managers, executives who are trying to navigate their teams through this crisis, as well as for all of us navigating these uh, uncharted waters where conflict is inevitable. So I'm really happy to be welcoming Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler to the program. Jennifer is a leading expert on conflict and organizational psychology. She's also the founder and CEO of Alignment Strategies Group and author of a wonderful new book that I hope you will get and find value in, as I have. It's called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. Selected as a Financial Times Book of the Month. Welcome, Jennifer.
1: Thank you so much, Stu. It's great to be with you.
0: Well, it's great to have you here. Let me just uh, say a little bit more about you before we jump into the conversation. For two decades, Jennifer has advised senior leaders at global corporations as well as at uh, large nonprofit and governmental institutions. She's a former counterterrorism research fellow with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and received her B.A. with honors from Tufts University, and she's got a Ph.D. in social organizational psychology from Columbia University. She writes the Achieving Conflict Freedom column at Psychology Today, and she teaches in the Department of Organizational, Organization and Leadership at Columbia. Um, her popular co- course is about conflict freedom. She also coaches global business and government leaders in the executive education program at Columbia Business School and has worked with many corporate clients, uh, including GE Capital, Moody's. Navigant, bunch of others. Let's get into the conversation. Jennifer, uh, the pandemic has had countless effects on people. Uh, and certainly many of us find ourselves, while physically distancing, remaining socially connected, uh, and living alone, it can get quite lonely, of course. But the flip side is that for many families, partners, they're now living and working and going to school all the same time in the same place. So the, the boundaries that used to, the physical boundaries that used to separate us and make, you know, make it easier in some ways to focus on a given project or task at a time, those have been simply obliterated and we've got to find new ways to negotiate those boundaries, which of course is, uh, is all about negotiating um, freedom, uh, for for each of us to do what it was that we need to that, that we needed to focus on. Uh, you know, teenagers can't get out of the house and socialize with their peers. Younger children can't go on play dates. Everyone's eating every, all their meals together and sharing resources like internet bandwidth. It's all got to be negotiated, um, including screen time, being negotiated. I think in more intense circumstances these days. At least that's what I'm picking up. Parents are just pulling their hair out over homeschooling. Couples are needing to do some serious prioritizing over whose calls take precedence. There's so many opportunities for conflict and for uh, within the new home slash work unit, let's call it. Uh, And your book, Optimal Outcomes, is about freeing oneself from conflict. And you've got a lot of wisdom here for, for working parents working people generally speaking that is so relevant for right now let's dig into to some of the key lessons because uh, I know that people are eager to learn how to deal more effectively with the kinds of things that are vexing them these days so let me start by asking what are you hearing about what people are most concerned about when it comes to conflict in pandemic times
1: well, if the polls that we've been taking on recent webinars are any indication, uh, people are mo- mostly struggling with partners, spouses, and those relationships at home. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have done polls, and you know, by a wide margin, people are saying, I'm in conflict with my spouse, which is not at all surprising. Um,
0: really? I'm shocked. Shocked to hear that.
1: Really? Just kidding. Why?
0: Kidding. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, please continue. Yes. <laughs> of course I understand. Yeah,
1: yeah. Right. Cause as you said, we're negotiating with our spouses about what hours we can work, which, mm-hmm. you know, is a completely new negotiation to be having uh, for mm-hmm. some people, or at least it's a more intense version of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so gosh, now I've lost track of the original question. Well, no, I, was, I was
0: asking what you're picking up. So, and you answered it, uh, in terms of what's the most intense sort of conflict that is bubbling up in our lives these days. And you've, You've identified uh, conflict with partners uh, as as the thing that you're hearing most frequently. What else have you learned from your polling?
1: Right. I think it goes, you know, it's 360 degrees around. So if conflict with spouses is taking, you know, the top, uh, taking the cake there, there's Mm -hmm. still a ton of conflict going on with people and older parents trying to convince parents not to go out, not to socialize, Also with children, as you named, you know, how much screen time is okay, how much time inside, outside, um, doing all sorts of different things, how much homeschooling is okay not to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, all the conflict that's coming up about figuring out how to work remotely. And I think, you know, to -hmm. people's credit, my sense is that a lot of people are being gentle on themselves right now. And trying to give others the benefit of the doubt. So I think some of the conflict that we might begin to see even just over the next few weeks and over the next few months as the reality sinks in that this is not a short term quarantine, um, but that, you know, the effects of the of the pandemic are going to last uh, quite a bit longer than we had expected. I think there's going to be just more and more opportunity for conflict and also opportunity to learn how to deal with it more effectively.
0: All right so let's 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 explore what you have learned from your research and from other sources and and what you've put together in optimal outcomes about what people can and should be doing to better manage conflict and to uh, create more freedom from it where do we, Where do you begin? Where does one begin mm-hmm.
1: The most important message that I would like to get across about this work is that it is not always necessary or possible to resolve conflict. I think that is a mistaken notion that we've been taught over the last 40 years, starting you know in the late 70s and early 80s with this idea that getting to yes is possible for everyone in all circumstances. And of course, when the, when that book was written and that methodology came out, which I've spent 20 years of my own life teaching my entire adult career.
0: Um, You're speaking here about Fisher and Yuri's Getting to Yes, a modern classic in negotiation theory and an incredibly valuable and practical book.
1: Yes, exactly. So I myself grew up <laughs> using mm-hmm. Getting to Yes, and I'm in the field because of Getting to Yes. And I started mm-hmm. my career out at the program on negotiation at Harvard Law School. Mm-hmm. And I st- Still work with them, and I still have many, many colleagues who do. So it's amazing work. And something that I found was missing during my own 13 years of research in this area is that um, it doesn't always work hmm. because emotions get in the way, because there's more complexity than we realized at first, because identity is so important, social identity, um, personal identity. And so in situations where you're trying to resolve conflict and your efforts are failing over and over and over again, and you feel like you're stuck on a loop that is just not ending, then the work to be done is to ask yourself, what can I do to do something different in this situation to free myself from that conflict loop altogether? To stop telling myself that it's, that my job is to resolve something here and instead to ask myself, what would it look like to free myself from the loop altogether? And that's what the work, there's eight practices in the book that mm-hmm. help you do that.
0: So before we go through those, and that's my intention in our conversation today is to briefly describe what those practices are. Can you give us an example, perhaps from your own experience, about how you managed to do that yourself?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the main stories in the book, which was not easy for me to write or talk about, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I will tell you, is about me and my relationship with my mom. Mm -hmm. Uh, The book begins really with this scene of, uh, you know, my mom and I, for the umpteenth time having a conversation going around and around in circles where I feel blamed. She's telling me I don't call her enough. And I'm, you know, and I'm, the message I hear is you're a bad daughter, you know, (laughs) And Of course, she's not saying those words, but that's what I hear. And I'm trying to explain to her, look at my life. Look at my life. I have two young kids. I've got a husband. I've got a house. I've got a career that's like burgeoning. And all of it is spinning out of control. And I'm just doing my best to hold everything together. And you are telling me I'm not calling you often enough. And I don't know what to do. And so, you know, I kind of go back and forth between picking up the phone and saying, hey, mom, sorry, I can't talk right now, to not picking up the phone at all. And then she's texting me and worried about me and wondering where I am. So we're stuck on what I call this conflict loop. Hmm. And what I did was, as I was teaching this methodology to my students at Columbia, I decided one semester to put myself through the process using my mom and me as an example, and it was just um, so incredibly eye-opening for me to see that my own methodology actually worked for myself. And so the relationship that I have with my mom today is incredible. what happened.
0: What was the what was the the most you know crucial aspect of what you did differently to mm-hmm. free yourself?
1: Yeah. Well, as I said, there are eight practices, but what I find is that depending on the situation that you're in, one or two of the practices will likely hold the most um, juice, well, the most energy, the most ability to help you free yourself. And so for me, that was certainly true. And the two practices that really were central in my situation with my mom, one of them was mapping it out. And that is taking a situation that seems like it's very simple. So in the situation just described, you you know, I had been telling myself the story. This is between me and my mom. When, when I mapped it out, I saw actually there's a lot more at play here. Of course, there's my father and my brother who are also part of our immediate family. Mm-hmm. Then there's my aunt, my grandmother, um, and the relationships that my mother had with them. And they're no mm-hmm. longer here with us. Mm -hmm. Um, they've passed away. And so my mom is kind of trying, I realized through doing this mapping exercise that my mom is trying to have a relationship with me that was similar to her relationships with them. Mm -hmm. And this gave me so much empathy for my mom that even if I wasn't able to be there for her the way she wanted me to, just understanding that she wasn't some evil person trying to make my life miserable, she was Missing her mother and missing my aunt um, mm-hmm. was incredibly powerful and helped shift the situation for me. So and the other practice was about values. and, and
0: we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. I just want to remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler about her book, Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And we're talking about her relationship with her mother. What else are we going to talk about here? <laughs> because that's where it all begins uh, in our relationships with our parents. But it's a, it's a wonderful example of, um, well, being able to step back and see the patterns. So, so observing your, your own conflict habits and patterns and then increasing clarity by mapping out the conflict with greater complexity. Say more about what those practices look like.
1: Well, you just named the first two. So the first one is about looking at what I call our conflict habits. So basically, in very simple terms, we tend to either blame other people, avoid other people, blame and shame ourselves or relentlessly collaborate with other people even when they are not willing to collaborate with us. So actually we, we relentlessly seek to collaborate with other people even when they are not willing to do the same. Mm-hmm. And so just identifying which one of these habits do we tend to fall back on can be very helpful uh, so that we can see what are we doing typically that keeps us stuck on that conflict loop and then what would be different from that. You know, virtually doing everything. Anything that's not the habit that you're stuck in is going to be helpful, hmm. uh, as long as it's constructive. So identifying your own conflict habit and other people's conflict habit then helps you see what's the pattern we've gotten stuck in. So my mom and I were stuck on a blame-blame pattern loop. Mm-hmm. So that's the first piece. Notice the habits and notice the pattern
0: you're stuck in. Then what, is it, what does it take? Let me jump yeah, in and ask you know. where people get stuck or what makes it difficult to see those patterns. What, do you, what kinds of uh, you know, resistance do you have to get through to be able to have that kind of insight?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing that comes to mind um, is that we tend to focus on the content of what we are fighting about with other people or what we're concerned about. So, just as you know, to go back to the example of me and my mom, I was so focused on her blaming me that I wasn't good enough, that I couldn't see much beyond that. Hmm. So I think the inability to see the pattern is that we're very focused on the content of what is going on. And so taking that step back Mm -hmm. to say, forget the content for a minute, forget what the person is actually saying. Let's look at the process of what's happening here can just, be very enlightening. Um, And that in and of itself is a pattern breaking measure, right? Because when we're stuck in conflict, we're usually doing, doing, doing. Either I'm hanging up and flinging down the phone and crying, or I'm screaming at her, you know, so that we're doing these things. Even if you're avoiding, you're actually, you're typically in doing mode because you're avoiding the conflict and putting your attention elsewhere. So just pausing, to ask yourself to notice the habit and the pattern you're stuck in is pattern breaking in and of itself.
0: What's the, what's the question, if you could reduce it to its essence that one has to ask to themselves to your, like, what is the, all right, I see I'm in conflict. What do I ask myself to find out what that pattern might be, or at least to develop uh, some hunch about what it might be.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll give you an easy answer for people, which is that mm-hmm. they can go online at optimaloutcomesbook.com/assessment mm-hmm. and actually take a seven-minute free, sh- very short assessment to find out what is your conflict habit. Um, and outside of that, you can ask yourself, of these four, so do I typically, when I'm stuck in conflict, do I typically blame other people? Do I typically avoid other people or shut down in the face of conflict? Mm. Do I typically turn it inward and blame myself for something that might have gone wrong? Mm-hmm. Or do I typically try to collaborate even when other people are not mm-hmm. reciprocating?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, this is, that's how I would frame it. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I think and people
1: so- tend to know themselves pretty well.
0: So then... People are accurate once once you sort of get those questions in front of you. Most most people you find that you work with are able to make a, a pretty good judgment about which pattern it is. And, and then, then... I have found that they are. Um, the mapping. You started to talk about that with respect to your family. Can you say more generally what the, the mapping out of the conflict looks like? What does that involve yeah. and, and yeah. how it helps?
1: Yeah. There are basically four steps. So if I ask you, well, who's involved in your situation and what are they concerned about? The first thing you would do with your map is just put down those most obvious people. So in my example, it's, you know, I put down my mom and I put me. And then I put circles around the people and I put lines to show how they're connected with each other. And the second step is expand. Put people, events, ideas, any factors on your map that might influence or be influenced by the situation. So you want to expand that map and put circles and lines to show how they're connected. And the third step is get creative. You want to put anything on that map that will help you tell the story of the situation in a different way than you've seen it before. So I've seen people put colors on their map. I've seen people put little icons of hearts and X's to show relationships that are doing well versus relationships that aren't doing so well. Names of emotions, places, uh, literally pictures and drawings, anything that will help you tell the story in a different way. And then the fourth step is to take a step back and look at the map and see what story does this tell? And again, I've seen people do this. I've been doing webinars now for the last many weeks after launching the Mm -hmm. book. And um, I've given people two minutes to map their situation. Mm -hmm. And then I ask them what insight they've gained. Mm -hmm. It blows me away every time.
0: It doesn't take long.
1: It doesn't.
0: The main thing is to pause and and just try to see the reality as it is now Mm -hmm. in in a more expansive context. So can you, can you give an example about what, um, what kinds of maps you've seen in these last couple of weeks in, in our pandemic times that, that uh, that are specific to this, New reality? Specific
1: to the new reality.
0: Well, of work, you get home and, and conflicts yeah. about yeah. time yeah. and resources in the home environment. Yeah. yeah.
1: So one example that comes to mind is somebody who said, and this is often true, you know, mm-hmm. the in, the insight that I'm asking people for is more generically. So I don't ask them uh, to tell me who's on their map. I ask mm-hmm. them, what's the insight you gained?
0: Uh-huh. So
1: somebody said, what I, figured, what I learned from doing this is that the pressure that's on my manager from her manager is something that was completely out of my line of sight before. And now that we're working remotely, it should be something I wouldn't even at all be thinking about or at all be aware of because I'm not even <laughs> seeing her manager. Mm. But I noticed that when I feel like I'm being micromanaged, well, maybe that could be because my manager is feeling pressure from her manager to do things a certain way. And that's coming out in a way that's unhelpful in my relationship with my manager. Mm -hmm. So just that ability to notice what's the pressures in the situation, whether they're on you directly or they're not on you directly can really be something that again, gives you empathy for that person. It doesn't take away the sting or the pain of being micromanaged Mm -hmm. in that situation, but it does help you understand where they might be coming from, why they might be acting the way that you can. And then you have a lot of more choices Mm -hmm. about what kinds of conversations, if any, you choose to have.
0: Mm -hmm. And how you respond to those, to those pressures now that you understand them more fully. Uh, How does that play out? Do you think in, uh, in you know in relationships with teenagers which uh, i i'm hearing a lot about that and you know i too have launched a book recently and i'm doing a lot of virtual webinars and coaching and working with students in my classes uh, my executive mba classes Mm -hmm. and uh, relationships with teenagers uh, have reached a a new level of uh, intense focus by so many of the people that i talk to uh what What does the mapping exercise help a parent um, discover about, you know, the typical teen if there is such a thing? Particularly now when they're, you know, they can't escape each other in terms of the, you know, the uh, lack of a physical boundary between home and school, home and work.
1: Right, right. Well, I will say just personally, my son is now 14, so I'm just on the cusp of experiencing what it may be that you're describing. So Mm -hmm. I cannot speak directly from personal experience, although we're getting there, Mm -hmm. uh, and my daughter is 11. Um, But I will say, same insights apply here, right? So if you're mapping out a situation about your family, and by the way, you could also have a map that maps both your family unit as well as you at work and shows how those are connected Mm -hmm. and which aspects of and how those might be bumping up against each other. That would be, I think, could be a very helpful practice to have. Um, But putting your teenager on your map and then noting what are the influences on your teenager from friends, from teachers, from sports coaches, uh, any anything that is influencing your child that you might not be aware of because you're not seeing it directly. Mm. Um, just asking yourself that question, and then and then asking you know the next set of questions of well, given those influences, what can I do to be in conversation with my child about how that's all going? What kind of stress might that be putting my child under that then may turn into fights between the two of us? Mm-hmm. Um, what can I understand? What questions could I ask, right? Just even creating a list of questions for yourself to ask your child about what their experience is like right now could be eye-opening.
0: And those questions would be kind of of a diagnostic nature, right, rather than an evaluative one, if I yes, have it, right? absolutely. You're, you're questions to... like,
1: tell me what's going... I mean, I would, I would even take it a step back from diagnostic and just say, in very general terms, tell me what's going on, Mm -hmm. tell me who's, who, what are you, you know, how are you spending your time, what'd you do this morning, then what'd you do this afternoon, Um, despite being in the same house, at least my experience with my 11 and 14 year olds is that, you know, they're pretty self-sufficient and they could be in their room all day on the laptop and it could look like they're doing homework, but they're actually playing Minecraft or vice versa. Um, and so me asking each day, so what'd you do this morning? What'd you do this afternoon? How'd nothing, that go? Who nothing, are you talking to? Nothing.
0: Fine. Nothing. Fine. <laughs> fine. Nothing. Um, right. Hang on. We're, we're going to take a short break here, Jennifer. Um, I want to just remind listeners uh, to not go away when we come back. I'm going to continue my conversation with Jennifer Goldman Wetzler about optimal outcomes and we're going to get into uh, the, the, the life of emotions and, and how emotions affect our ability to to deal with and, and uh, gain a greater sense of freedom from conflict as well as our values uh, and what it means to imagine, well, a different future and, and how to how to break the patterns that you observe, which is, of course, where, where the work begins, observing reality as it is and, and trying to move to a better place. Uh, all that when we come back in just a minute. I am Stu Friedman, and this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Dr. Jennifer Goldman-Wetzler. She's a leading expert on conflict and organizational psychology. She's got a great new book called Optimal Outcomes, Free Yourself from Conflict at Work, at Home, and in Life. And gee, that is something that a lot of people need help with right now as we are living in a new world with... uh, inescapable uh, connections to, to people that live in our homes that we used to be able to uh, find time away from. And it's created all kinds of opportunity for new arrangements to be made and, and, and negotiated and, and to, to focus on how we can live in peace and harmony, starting in our own homes and then of course, rippling out into the wider world. Uh, there's much to be gained from thinking about how to create optimal outcomes. Jennifer, uh, let's get into um, the role of emotions in all this. Uh, what, what's the essential insight uh, about what, what people need to know about their emotions as they influence their ability to effectively make positive change happen in their home lives in their work lives and beyond?
1: Well, what I always like to talk about is something that's a bit counterintuitive because I think we've all been taught, or at least many of us have been taught over the last few decades, that emotional intelligence is what we need to increase for ourselves. And I, typically, whether or not this is even really the way that emotional intelligence is meant to be understood, many of us understand it as we need to have empathy for other people. Certainly, that's what I have used to go around teaching. And what I've discovered is that empathy for other people begins with understanding our own emotions first. Because if you try to have empathy for someone else, you, without understanding what's going on for you inside, you risk projecting your own emotions onto other people in any case and kind of getting it wrong. So I encourage us as a first step to simply identify what are the emotions and literally name them. What are the emotions that I might be experiencing in any given moment? And today under quarantine, this is more important than ever, particularly because from what I have heard from many, many people Emotions these days are feeling more like a roller coaster than they have in a long time for more people than they have. Mm -hmm. And so just the ability, we could even do it right now, right? To just stop and ask yourself, what am I feeling? Am I feeling engaged or am I feeling bored? Am I feeling calm? Am I feeling maybe anxious or nervous? Am I feeling sad? There's so much loss in the world today that if you didn't feel some sense of sadness or some grief even, Uh, that might even be a little strange, right? So just to ask yourself, how am I feeling and notice? Now, the Buddhist masters will tell you just noticing your emotions can help them settle. But what I've discovered over decades of practice with real people in real organizations is that especially when we're feeling our emotions intensely, they don't always settle. That's just the reality of living in the Western world in particular. And so if your emotions are not settling, a good question to ask yourself is what messages might my emotions be trying to send me? So anger, typically saying something's not right here. Something's not fair or not just Mm. Uh, fear is telling us there's danger. And again, in today's world, you know, it used to be that I had to say, if you feel fear, the message might be danger, real or perceived, There was so much perceived danger that wasn't real, and we had to help people kind of understand that they might have been feeling fearful for no reason. Today, if you're feeling fearful because you're about to go out uh, in a setting that leaves you feeling uncomfortable because it doesn't feel safe to you, my advice is take note of that. Notice, okay, maybe I don't feel ready yet to go out. Um, Maybe I need to spend another few days or week or whatever it is hunkering down at home until I feel ready to go out. Um, Same thing with sadness. Sadness sends the message there's a loss that's occurred. So just noticing that. And especially with so many type A high achieving people, we tend to want to dive right back into life and kind of push the sadness aside. But the ability to sit with the sadness and notice that it's telling us there's a loss and then we have a choice. So that comes to the next question to ask yourself, which is what is a constructive pattern breaking action that I could take in the face of these messages? Mm -hmm. So that's what I just talked about, about if you feel fear and the messages, there's danger. Well, if I would typically push ahead anyway, maybe today, it's, you know, spend another X period of time hunkering down. Or if I feel sad, what would it look like to take a pause and acknowledge the loss?
0: So when you were uh, in, in the anecdote that begins your book and that started our conversation just a little while ago, when you were uh, angry with your mother for uh, castigating you or blaming you for being the bad daughter that you thought she was thinking you were, uh, how did you sort of uh, work with that emotion to help you to, well, to, to find freedom?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, first of all, I did need to acknowledge that, you know, I come from a family of screamers and door slammers, so this is in my heritage, <laughs> my lineage, and just to be able to acknowledge when I feel angry, I will yell, you know, yell at others, I'll lash out at others, not not in every context, right? I don't typically do this when I'm at work, and
0: th- different okay. contexts call for hey, different things. I just got a little <laughs> twinge of anxiety, as I thought, if I say the wrong you were thing, bracing I'm gonna yourself. Go, I'm going to get screamed at, and... <laughs> I don't like to be screened at. I can tell right. you that right now. Right. So, so please try to contain that in the rest of our... All
1: right. I will. <laughs> I will. <laughs> and of course, this is also, you know, such an interesting thing to me, which is that the context does matter. So I can know that, you know... I have got the knee-jerk reaction and people, again, there's a, a short quiz you can take online to assess which of the emotion traps do you tend to fall into? Is it knee-jerk reaction? Is it inaccessible emotions trap? Or is it the lurking emotions trap where you might feel something intensely inside and try to hide it from other people and then it oozes out anyway. So you can go okay. online um, at optimaloutcomesbook.com slash assessment and can take that. Okay. Um, so just identifying, look, this is how I deal mm-hmm. with my anger was helpful to me. Um, and then being able to sit with it and, you know, the amygdala is hijacking me all the time, right? My brain That's that part kind of, of your
0: brain that is the, the primitive part that uh, responds like a lizard and not like a conscious human being.
1: Right. So right? I'm, I'm, the, the reason, the advice that I give to myself on a daily basis and that I also give to many of my clients and students and it's in the book as well is about taking a proactive pause versus a reactive pause. Mm -hmm. So I know when I've got my meditation practice going strong, and that's in a proactive way each day, taking even just a couple of minutes to sit quietly, I am much more likely to react the way I would like to react or respond Mm -hmm. the way I would like to respond when I'm in that conflict, heat of the conflict moment, Mm -hmm. whether it's with my mom or anyone else. Um, versus times when that practice has gone away and I'm kind of running at a thousand miles a minute and Mm. forgetting to sit quietly. So the ability, the best advice that I can have, I mean, it's not an easy thing to know, to figure out how to take those three deep breaths because you're being hijacked Mm -hmm. um, in those moments. But the best advice I have for myself included is to take those proactive pauses because it does then help in those more difficult moments. I mean, I've got, Stu, if we were sharing screens right now, you'd be able to see my wallpaper, which has been my wallpaper on my screen for 14 or 15 years since I took this picture of the Buddha, a statue of the Buddha in Cambodia when I was there. Um, And I see it every day. And so as I'm just switching applications, I look at the Buddha and the Buddha looks at me and, you know, I take my deep breath and that helps a little bit. So
0: fewer door slams and screaming. Right, right well so just being able to step back and and observe yourself that is so essential how do one's values both the ideal and shadow values uh help to um give you a sense of where to go next
1: well, before we can talk about values, I must actually thank you because when I first started doing this work uh, about 13 years ago or so, I taught a workshop just to get you know experience and get data mm. from people about w- how it was landing on them. And I got up and I said, okay, now I want you to think about your ideal values and I want you to think about your shadow values, go. And the feedback I got was that was really hard. We need some kind of invent, like we need some ideas. Yes. And so I read total leadership and I said, I have an inventory. <laughs> so I had- found
0: from, from Lee and King.
1: Yes, exactly. Yes. So I give credit to both you and to them in oh, optimal outcomes I and to that. students. Yeah. Um, because students of mine have added to the inventory and kind of, uh, You know, edited some of the definitions over the years so that it worked for them, based on Mm -hmm. their own experience. So thank you for 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 that. I'm Um, glad it was useful. Yeah. So so how does
0: how does that help in the in the work of 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 freeing oneself from conflict?
1: Yeah. So what I do is I distinguish between ideal values and shadow values. I define Mm -hmm. ideal values as those things that we care about in life and we're proud to say we really care about. Mm -hmm. So again, my own example, um, adventure, leadership, spirituality, healthy living, making the world a better place. Happy to tell you that that's what I care about.
0: Yes, but I'm so much more interested in the shadow values, so please, please, (laughs) let's fish. Right.
1: (laughs) The shadow values, things that we Uh, really do care about in life and are not proud to admit, not even to our own selves. And so Mm -hmm. these things wreak havoc on our relationships with other people. They ooze out in ways we don't expect, we can't control. So these are things like status, power, recognition, financial security, sometimes even love. So um, just our ability to notice, honor, bring up out of the shadow, our own shadow values. And of course, there's a whole practice we can do to to honor other people's shadow values as well. Hmm. And what it means to honor a shadow value is that you do not need to speak or talk about these shadow values in words. You can honor a shadow value in thoughts, in words, or in actions. Hmm. Um, and
0: I'm, I'm going to ask you for an example of that in a minute. But first, yeah. let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Golden wetzler about optimal outcomes, free yourself from conflict at work, at home, and in life. And so say more, if you will, about, um, you know, what that... What that looks like to be able to um, identify and honor, as you say, both the ideal and shadow values and how that helps you to move towards better outcomes, because that's where I want to now focus the rest of our conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll give you a different example. So a a, a CEO client of mine, who is the CEO of a startup tech company in New York City, and he needed to lower the compensation package of one of his co-founders the head of sales of his organization and they had been Mm. friends for many years and this was very difficult for him to do and every time he tried to bring it up they got into a screaming match until one or both of them shut down and then they wouldn't talk to each other for many weeks or months and this just was a loop that kept going on Mm. and so he When he identified, when I asked him to identify his ideal values, one of them was collaboration. He had grown up in the software field, which has a very uh, clear value on collaboration, collaborative leadership. And so he said to himself, I need to be collaborative. And for the most part, he was a collaborative leader. But what he did was he simultaneously pushed down the shadow value of authority so that even as CEO of an organization, he felt embarrassed or like it wasn't okay for him to make clear decisions, even decisions that would impact the financial success or not of the company that he ran. And so when he noticed that this was a shadow value for him, my question to him was, well, how could you honor that for yourself? And it may be you say it in words to your head of sales, or maybe you just know it for yourself and that it impacts your behavior. So he said, you know, one of the things i can't stand here is that i am the ceo of this company and she is yelling at me for the mere fact of me bringing up a topic that she doesn't want to talk about and that infuriates me mm. i don't it is not okay with me for her to treat me that way And he said, you know, I can take responsibility for the fact that I'm not proud of my own behavior, that I'm yelling back at her, but I need to let her know it's not okay for us to treat each other this way and it's not okay for her to treat me.
0: To speak about the current reality as you observe it in terms of the values that are important to you. Is, Is that it?
1: What do you mean?
0: So what the, in this example you have the CEO saying, you know, it's it's not fair, it's not it's not just, it's not appropriate for my colleague to be yelling at me yeah. about something that I have authority to be resol- to be deciding. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so what I was asking was uh, you know the, the the benefit of identifying both your ideal as well as the shadow values it gives you a a clearer sort of map or groundwork grounding for um, you know how you can choose to respond uh, when you're in when you're in conflict.
1: Yes, it gave him a lot more options, a lot more mm-hmm. ideas, other ideas about how to be in relationship with his head of sales. Mm-hmm. right. So before he was trying so hard to seem like this collaborative partner to her, but underneath it all, he was pissed at her (laughs) and he was angry that she was responding the way she was. Mm -hmm. So once he acknowledged, you know what, actually it's okay for me to both be collaborative leader and have authority. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what being a CEO in this industry is all about. And if I ignore one side of that and push it down and pretend it doesn't exist, I'm not doing anyone any good.
0: So how does this play out these days in our, you know, new pandemic life, uh, again, I want to bring it back to the, the home unit, the place where everything is happening now, work, family, community, the whole world is just within our homes now for so many of us these days. Mm-hmm. How does the identification of one's values help, well, working parents specifically to navigate these uncharted waters?
1: Yeah. Well, I'm going to go in for the, for the tough one here and talk about chores, and splitting of chores between spouses or people who are adults living in the same home. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Because this is one that I know so many people, including myself, uh, have to manage. So, and this is not necessarily an easy, (laughs) this is a tough one. So honoring shadow values goes both. You can honor your own shadow values. You can also honor other people's shadow values. And it may be that, we have shadow values about egalitarianism or we have shadow values about whose job it is actually to do the chores in the house Mm -hmm. and so even if let's say you are feeling so frustrated you know no one else is doing the the housework and you're doing it alone and you kind of not you're stuck on that conflict loop What else could you do? How could you honor someone else's shadow values? You might have, you know, for for many colleagues, friends, people I've talked to these days, I've heard people say to me, you know, my partner says that he cares about helping me with these chores, but it's all Mm -hmm. landing on me or that's how it feels. Mm -hmm. So one practice you can do is to ask yourself, what is the thing that, the other person is saying is important to them what is their ideal value right it might be their ideal value is that they're an egalitarian partner
0: we're going to share care in right this, in this home
1: right and that they may have a shadow value of tradition mm-hmm. or something else that is men don't kind of, do laundry right right
0: or some such right but they would I'm never not, say that. that that's something that, that one should believe <laughs> right uh, or that I do but uh, exactly
1: right see even saying it out loud feels I wrong have to apologize, right
0: yes for even for even identifying something that <laughs> may or may not be true about me personally <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly we don't it's so unspeakable that what would it look like for us to know that in our own mind, or at least to to think to ourselves, maybe that's true for them? Now, I don't suggest walking up to your partner and saying, you know, I think you have a shadow value of tradition, or I think you have a shadow value of not being willing to do do laundry. Uh, it is probably more helpful to allow that just to sit with you, and see what impact might that have? Look, I know, I see that my husband says one thing and is, you know, maybe deep down believes something else. First of all, maybe we can have a conversation about it or maybe not. Maybe it means I've got a little more empathy. I see the place that we are in history where these things are shifting but not as fast as we would like. Um, maybe I can take some kind of action like not doing the laundry and see what happens, right? I'm not gonna do the laundry and it'll just pile up until he's gonna gotta do it, right? There other options become available.
0: Mm-hmm. With, with that kind of, uh, well, once again, it's, uh, it's stepping back to see the bigger picture uh, of you know, the sources of you know, different perspectives about what's important and what people should or should not be doing. Jennifer, uh, there's, there's a lot more that I want to discover in conversation with you, but I'm going to have to leave it for um, you know further exploration of the wonderful exercises and explanations in your book, as I hope uh, reader, listeners will as well. But in the couple minutes that we've got left here, um, what's what are the essential ideas or the big idea you want to make sure we understand about? You know, designing a pat, a pattern breaking path and how you can move forward with it, test it, and and choose uh, those optimal outcomes.
1: The big idea is that if you've been trying to resolve conflict and your efforts have not been successful, stop trying. Stop trying to resolve it, and ask yourself, how can I free myself from this conflict loop instead? How can I notice the habits that I've gotten stuck in or the habit other people have gotten stuck in and what pattern we're stuck in. How can I map out the complexity of the situation? How can I notice what emotions I've gotten trapped by and how can I notice what emotions I'm experiencing, what message they're sending me, uh, what constructive action I could take based on that that's different from what I've done before. The pattern breaking path is all about taking, um, pattern-breaking action, things that are different from what you've done before over and over and over again, and keeping them small and simple so that you're not kind of coming out with this big uh, intervention or like some big, horrible conversation
0: that's going to go poorly. That's it. You're moving out. (laughs) Bye. We're done. Right. Exactly. Something something short of that for that couple (laughs) we were talking about earlier.
1: Exactly. Start with yourself. And by the way, Hmm. using these optimal outcomes practices as a way to begin just with yourself is a great first step in any pattern-breaking path.
0: So d- define once more, if you would, just just to clarify the what an opti- optimal outcome is.
1: An optimal outcome is made up of two things. First, your imagined ideal future. We're so often, when we're stuck in conflict, we're looking backwards at who's to blame and what went wrong. So we want to look ahead, but we don't want to just use our rational thinking brain to do that, because if we do... Uh, we 're not likely to get anywhere different if your rational thinking brain could have solved the problem, it would have done so a long time ago, right? So mm-hmm. instead, you want to put down the rational thinking brain and use your imagination and the best way to know how to do that is with five of your five senses plus your emotions. So what will it look like then? What will it sound like in that mm-hmm. future? What will it even taste or smell like? What will it feel like? but you can 't stop there because then you might just be off in fantasy land, right? So you want to ground it in the reality. That you're facing, the reality of the constraints of the situation itself, Mm -hmm. the reality of who the other people are, not just what they care about, but who they are with all their strengths and their limitations, and also who you are in reality with all of your own strengths and limitations. So optimal outcome makes use of both of
0: those things. Jennifer, I much appreciate your taking the time to share your wisdom with us uh, in this conversation. How can listeners find more about the work that you're doing and about your book?
1: Uh, the best place, as you know, is optimaloutcomesbook.com. There's a ton of free resources online, and you can also find me on uh, all the social media platforms uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Look forward to being in touch with you all.
0: All right, Jennifer. Thanks so much for being a part of this conversation. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, Stu.
0: And thank you for listening. If you uh, have anything you want to ask me about, just email friedman at or you can email our station, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. I'm at Stu Friedman. And edited versions of uh, our shows are available as free podcasts at workandlifepodcast.com. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.